Joel chapter 3. I'm going to do a little bit of a review, primarily of chapter 3, but also uh, pretty much of the whole whole book uh, is really encapsulated in this particular chapter. So uh, let's read verses 18 through 21, which is the text that we're going to conclude tonight. And then we'll get into the, uh, into the review plus the study itself. And it shall come to pass in that day. And remember that the phrase in that day always refers to that day called the day of the Lord. What part of the day is probably the very end of it because the judgment is pretty much through the first, the whole of the seven years until the very end. So it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord. And shall water the valley of Shittim. Literally, that's the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation. And Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. For the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. The third chapter of Joel's prophecy, and that is the whole of the chapter gives us a clear timetable for the climax of the, of the period this prophecy has focused upon, which is the day of the Lord. It is the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. That's, that's the time. That's the timetable. Because Israel has returned to the land, because of everything that's happening today in the Middle East, and pretty much everything revolves around the nation of Israel. There's no question then, based on many other scriptural passages, that this time period, this day, this seven-year period of time known as the tribulation, also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, is about to take place. All of end-time Bible prophecy hinges on the presence of the nation of Israel, where the Lord will once again, as it says in verse 1, bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And will also gather all the nations that he might declare his indictment of judgment upon them for their treatment of his heritage, Israel, his people, his land. In the text, it says, my heritage, Israel, my people, my land. Now, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter uh, 3, the reasons are given for the judgment of God upon all nations. And again, it all revolves around the nation of Israel. They scattered God's people among the nations. They split God's land. In other words, they divided God's land. They scattered God's people, they split God's land, and they stole God's children for immorality. Consider how cheaply God's people were, and in many cases still are, regarded. Turn to Amos, the next book over, uh, Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Notice what it says. Thus saith the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. I mean, that, that lets you know, that gives you an indication of how little, how little they regarded the Jewish people. How cheaply they regarded God's people. In verses 4 through 8 of our text, going back to chapter 3 of Joel, we saw the recompense of God. By the way, the word recompense just simply means the, the payback of God. The recompense of God mentioned that will come down upon the nations, in particular, Lebanon and the Palestinians. Lebanon is Tyre and Sidon, as we studied a couple of weeks ago. The coasts of Palestine. Interesting that the word Palestine is used. We talked about that already. But uh, the King James translators used that word because it was related to the Philistines and that was related to the Phoenicians. All of those were seaworthy or seagoing people, or at least the Phoenicians were, and brought uh, themselves over to this portion of, of the land that, was, that today is known as Gaza. Gaza is mentioned often in scripture, especially in the prophets. And uh, so these are nations that are specifically targeted by God because of their treatment of the Jewish people. What he says in verse 4 is that he confronts them. Verse 4 is about confronting them. Uh, yea, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon, and all the coasts of Palestine? He confronts them. In verse 5, he condemns them. He says, because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. In verses 6 through 8, he chastises them. He prepares them for the judgment that is to come. There is some sense of correction in what he's saying to them by what he is going to do in bringing recompense. Consider verse 7 where he says, Behold, I will raise them out of the place whither you have sold them. And again, he's, 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 he's bringing up the issue of how they took the people and sold them as slaves. I will raise them out of the place whither you have sold them and will return your recompense, your recompense upon your own head. What you did to them, that's going to come back onto you. And time and again, what we see in scripture is that very same principle taking place. That very same principle of recompense. What you do from the, you know, from the evil of your own heart and your own actions in disobedience to me, in disobedience to my word, in disobedience to the things that I will give to all of you, you know, both Jew and Gentile. God is no respecter of persons. Yes, he has blessed the Jewish people, but he wants to bless the Gentiles as well. What a lot of people don't realize is that God raised up the Jewish people to bless the Gentiles. Think about that when you read Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 13 and Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. You go on and you read these particular chapters and you realize what God was raising up for the sake of all who were created, all who are sinners, the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles. But he raised them up specifically for the purpose of bringing the Messiah of Israel to bless the Jew first and also the Gentile. 
This is one reason why we have to be very careful how we approach the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, all of that. God is very clear in the scriptures. The land, the people belong to me. I don't want to mess with God in, in that respect. Some people think that they can. Some people are doing a lot of that today, nowadays, in, in terrible ways, by the way. But then even as the Lord has, has confronted and condemned and chastised them, the Lord also confirms that this will indeed take place. It is something that is going to happen. Verse 8 of Joel 3, he says, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the children of Judah. They shall sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off. It's the last phrase that matters, for the Lord has spoken it. The Lord has spoken it, it's going to be done. This is going to happen. Recompense will come upon all the enemies of Israel. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 3, the Lord himself will now rouse the nations to battle. The Lord is waking them up. He is stirring the nations. He's provoking the nations and inciting and moving them to bring their armies and whatever armaments that they want to bring to Israel where the Lord God of Israel will judge them. And he's making it real clear that this is what we looked at last time, the last two weeks. God is stirring them. You hate my people, you hate the, you hate the nation of Israel. That's, that's a very clear thing right now in the United Nations today. And I said this time and time again, no other nation in this, in this world presently has more condemnations against them from the United Nations than Israel. Israel is being condemned. I mean, they get condemned for just waking up in the morning. They get condemned for eating falafels at lunch. And I'm not trying to joke about it. The fact of the matter is, people are not paying attention to what God has said about his people. And here again, this is where a lot of this judgment is, is coming from. You come to Israel. Where I will, you, know, you come, you come with, with whatever you have. It's an invitation to all nations, by the way, verse 11. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen. Remember that the word heathen is goyim. Goyim is also the word used for nations. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones. Oh, we'll get to that next part in just a moment. But it's an invitation to all the nations. Now, the second part of the verse, which I almost read right now, and I'll read it in just a moment. Whereas the first part is an invitation to all nations, the second part mentions the involvement of angels in this judgment. The involvement of angels in this judgment, the second part of uh, verse 11. There cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. There cause thy mighty ones to come down. Now, while, while this, be, this will be a battle that will include both physical beings and unseen spiritual beings, and this is kind of clear when you begin to look at the, uh, the mentions of war and armies and battles in the book of Revelation. There is the seen and the unseen. There are those things. There are, there are spiritual entities that are going to be involved in all of the battles that are going to take place at the end, at the very end. It's important to note that the Messiah will not need the help of angels. He is calling them, 
Cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. The, the, the angels, the mighty ones of heaven, the hosts of heaven will come down. But, they, but the Messiah will not need to help the help of the angels for this final conflict. Because the Lord is going to handle all things by himself. Now we made reference to this going back to Isaiah 63 in verses 1 through 6. I want to read it again because I think now in context you'll begin to see how important it is to realize that it is the Messiah himself, Jesus. You know, this is the Jesus that the world wants to be meek and mild. This is the Jesus that everybody says, well, you know, he's, he's you know, oh my goodness, you know, all the, the politics surrounding uh, so many issues today that, that pertain to, the, you know, the person of Jesus. If people can keep him a baby, they would keep him a baby. But I, I hate to tell them, you know, well, he, he did actually grow up. And, you know, he did actually die on, on a cross for the sins of men. And he actually did get buried because he was dead. But in the third day, he rose again from the dead. And he's alive today. And the way he came the first time is not the way he's coming the second time. Second time when he comes, he's coming to judge the nations. That's very clear from Revelation chapters 18 and 19. Especially Revelation 19. It's also clear when you look at the, 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 the image of Jesus uh, that is given to us by John in Revelation chapter 1. But it's here in Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6 where it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? Remember Edom is Esau or Edom is... Uh, the nation that was founded by Esau, that's the area of Jordan today, east of Israel. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He answers the question himself. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, in thy garments, like him that treadeth in the wine fat, or the wine vat, you know. As, as if he was the one that was treading on the grapes. And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. This is Messiah. This is Jesus coming to judge the nations. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. It wasn't an army of men that were with Jesus doing this. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that that was none to, to uphold. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me. And my fury it, helped, it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger, I make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Before anybody gets the idea that all of a sudden there's something wrong with the character of Christ here, what we have to remember is that Jesus is always, always just. And Jesus is always righteous. Jesus is always true. The scripture is very clear that God hates sin. He hates it. He wants his people to hate it. But he wants us to hate it with a perfect hatred. David talks about that in his Psalms many times. A 
perfect hatred is a complete hatred against the sins that have caused the problems that man has today. So Jesus makes it very clear, at least the Messiah makes it very clear here, we know the Messiah is Jesus, that, that when he comes to judge, he comes to judge, and he's, you know, the nations will battle against him. No matter who's gathered together today on the side of Israel, which, by the way, what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is there really aren't going to be any nation siding with Israel. This is why Messiah has to come to battle for his own people. But it doesn't mean that angels won't be involved in the judgment. Because in fact, consider these passages, if you will, in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, Jesus said, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The angels will come to take out the iniquity as Jesus judges it. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32 says, when the, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. We know from the scriptures that Jesus is going to divide the sheep from the goats. He's going to divide the tares from the wheat or the wheat from the tares. The wheat is the good that has the fruit. The tares are the things that look like wheat, but they're actually the weeds. So he's going to divide the wheat from the weeds. And what happens to the weeds? They get cast into the fire. That's part of uh, the agricultural uh, system of the Middle East as, as well, especially in Israel. When they finally separate the wheat from the, from the tares, they take the wheat and, of course, they, they harvest it, they, they repair it, they take it into the, uh, the winnowing fields, they you know, separate the, sha the, the chaff from the, from the fruit. But all the tares, they don't, all they want to do is get rid of them, so they burn them. And that's the picture that God gives of the dividing of what is good and what is evil. The shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. But I want you to think of the context of this passage from verse 31 that we just read a moment ago down through verse 46 of Matthew 25. You all have read it, and, and you know many times this has been used in many different uh, settings, many different occasions. You'll, you'll know what I mean when I, when I mention these particular verses. Take, for example, Matthew 25, verse 40. Just go down a few verses to verse 40. It says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. We've seen that passage used in, in, in various applications. You know, when, when, when were you in prison, Lord? When were you hungry? When were you naked? When were you these things? And then he says, in as much as you've done it, in other words, if you've clothed me, if you've fed me, if you, if you helped me, if you 
Strengthen me. As you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Let's never forget the context of this passage. The context of chapters 24 and 25, always, is the end times and God's care for his people Israel. So when Jesus says, and as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, well, who, is the, who are the brethren of Christ? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Yet he loved them with an everlasting love. He came unto his own, yet his own received him not. Yet, but to as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. So he's speaking about his own people. And the consequences, by the way, when you read all of this, there were those who did not help, there were those who did. God would bless and will, and will bless all those who helped his people. And, but the consequences, both ways, are everlasting. Matthew 25, verse 46, the very last verse there. And these shall go away into everlasting judgment, or punishment, I'm sorry but the righteous into life eternal. Those that did not help, those who did not feed, those who did not clothe, those who did not visit in prison, the righteous who did are taken into life eternal. That's not what saves them, but the very fact that they did reveals the heart of of a person who not only loves God, but loves God's people. From verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3 of Joel, we're reminded that the realization of the day of the Lord will indeed come. The realization of that day will come. The roaring of the Lord will be the announcement of the Messiah's intervention for the sake of his people Israel. So there's a realization the day is, going to de- is indeed going to come, The roaring of the Lord, as we see there in verse 16, is the announcement of the Messiah's intervention for the sake of his people Israel. And then God's people shall have no problem in recognizing the Lord, verse 17. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Let's read the whole passage there for just a moment, verses 14 through 17. Again, giving, the, giving us the picture of what's taking place. Multitude, mul- uh, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The valley where there will be the confrontation between the nations and the Messiah. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. More and more we are moving toward a time when sun and the moon are going to be darkened in such a way that it truly becomes a sign of the day of the Lord. We get little hints of this from time to time. Uh, More of the uh, uh, lunar and solar eclipses that that we've seen, the red moon, you know, those those kind of things that are happening. They're little signs. They're not... magnified quite yet as as the scripture says but they're they're moving in that direction toward it Uh, the lord also shall roar out of zion and utter his voice from jerusalem 
And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. Jerusalem was to be a holy city unto the Lord, and it became unholy in, in a couple of different ways. One way is when they were overrun by all of these strange nations that came to destroy them and came to fight against them. The other way was that the, the very own people that were supposed to be holy began to dis, you know, disobey God and rebel against God. As people do today. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, like, wow, you know, we, we're a lot better off than they were. Oh, it's still happening today. We're still doing dumb things, stupid things. I say we, I mean, you, know, you say, don't include me. Well, yeah, I'm going to include everybody, me too. Right? We're not perfect. So they, the reasons why they went into captivity, why they went into captivity in Assyria, the northern kingdom of Israel, why the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity in Babylon, they turned, if you remember our study in the book of Ezekiel, they turned the city, even the temple, into a disgrace. And after the judgment upon the nations, after what we've been talking about here in this chapter, uh, Judah, which will be under the care and protective hand of the Lord, Judah will enjoy the fullness of divine blessing. But the key word leading to these blessings is the word holy. Kadesh, holy. The land will never again be defiled by foreign invaders, or will it, never, it will never be profaned by its own people again. Nations will come to Jerusalem, but when they do, it will be in order to worship the Lord there. And again, that's after, you know, this confrontation, this great uh, military war. There's not going to be much of a military battle. Because God, you know, Christ is going to rule over power because of who he is. So when nations do start coming to Jerusalem, when Jesus is on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, when they do, it will be in order to worship the Lord there. Isaiah 35 verse 8 says, A highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. What did Jesus say of himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. A highway shall be there. Away, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. Isaiah 52 verse 1 says, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Remember that circumcision, when it comes down to it in the spiritual sense, circumcision is something that is indeed of the heart and not of the flesh. It was of the flesh to give indication of the necessity to be separated, cut off from the flesh and made a part holy unto the Lord. So, Holiness is going to be 
the key of what takes place in Jerusalem at the time of the millennium, the time of the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we move on. Zechariah 14, verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone that is left of all the nations, whatever is left. So that tells us they're not going to be annihilated. There will be people still on the earth at the time of Christ's rule and reign in Jerusalem. From all the nations, or at least for most of the nations, if not all the nations. But they will come to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of tabernacles. Now in the millennium, which I mentioned is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, the countryside of Israel, Jerusalem, Zion, will glow with new health, and everything will be bountiful, and everything will be beautiful. <laughs> the prophecies that began with a, a land devastated by locusts, that's how we started the book of Joel. This land that was devastated by, by a locust invasion. And the invasion was, was one that was, uh, was uh, progressive. Started with a certain type of locust and they went to a, the next kind of locust that was more devouring than the first and so on and so forth. So the prophecy that began with a land devastated by locusts is going to end and it is going to continue. It, it, it ends with the book, but what is describing is something that will continue as a land that is flowing with wine and water that is flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse 18 now. Now the text, we're, we finally made it. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the, water the valley of Shittim. You think of a land that over the centuries was ravaged by wars. Famines, droughts, and even the occasional invasion of plundering insects like the locusts. Those of you that have ever been to Israel with us, or you've gone with any other, any other group, but if you've ever been to Israel, you see uh, throughout the land, from north to south, what, what, what the people of Israel had to endure, and what they still have to endure today. We've actually been in Israel, uh, and, and we were down in the south, but uh, up, up north there were uh, hurling bombs into uh, the northern part of, 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 of Israel, uh, out of um, Lebanon. Uh, that's the Hezbollah that are in control of the government there now. What's happening today, what, what has been happening over the last month or so, have been these attacks of bombs coming over from Gaza down more toward the south uh, into areas like Ashkelon. And, and, and these are all places we've been to. And we've been there when some of these things are happening. 
So even to this day, they're, they're just, they're, there's this uh, fight for existence. Yet they're the ones that are being criticized for being the, the, uh, the oppressors while they're just trying to stay alive. And they have a very strong army. The Israeli army is a very strong army. And they have, they have strong, strong um, uh, security forces and uh, spies, as it were. Uh, they, they, they have ears on everything. And uh, it's all so that they can stay alive as a nation. One of these days they're going to realize that God's hand is over them. A lot of them don't realize that. They kind of believe it theoretically, but they don't really realize how much God's hand is upon, upon them. So you see the land attacked by war, attacked by famines and droughts, and uh, these kinds of invasions, but a, a day's coming when the land is going to be like the Garden of Eden, the garden described in Genesis, beautiful and fruitful as it says in, in Isaiah 51 verse 3 where it says, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. If you've ever been to the south, down by Masada, down by the Dead Sea, it's a wilderness. In some parts of it, it's a waste place. I mean, it looks like waste. But he's going to make it like Eden. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving in the voice of melody. When I read about uh, the Valley of Shittim, that's actually at the northern part of the Dead Sea. It's in the south, but it's in the northern part of the Dead Sea. When you look at the Dead Sea, that area, I mean, it's like there's nothing out there. Nothing can grow because there's so much salt. You know, the Dead Sea is 30% salt. That's a lot. You know, so it just kills everything. And yet when we study the book of Ezekiel, it says there, that the water that's going to flow from the, from the temple, from the throne of God, is going to reach the Dead Sea and turn it into a clear, beautiful sea. And he's going to get rid of all of the, what, what has poisoned the, the, the whole land out there. It's a wonderful description as, as we read it and studied it. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. It's an interesting thing that the land of Israel <clears throat> has always been dependent, dependent on the early and latter rains for water. That's how they got their water. The early and the latter rains. They would make their cisterns, you know, to catch the water so they could use the water throughout, you know, their, their seasons. But the Lord is going to give them fountains and a river to water the land. Now, isn't it interesting, you know, the land that God calls his own, 
As a matter of fact, Abraham, when you think of Abraham and Lot, when they had that decision to make, you know, okay, Lot, which way do you want to go? You know, we're getting, we're getting kind of too close here and, and you know, we're, you know our, our, our shepherds are fighting amongst each other. Which way do you want to go? And well, I'll go the other direction. And Lot looked over to Sodom and it's really green, man, and plush. And he said, okay, well, we're going to go that way. And Abraham said, okay. But he was going now west over to the wilderness of Judah. And he goes over there. And I mean, there's practically nothing out there. But this is where God sends him. This is where God wanted him to go. Because eventually we realize Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac, uh, is the very place where Jesus would die on a cross. Mount Zion, that same area. So this was what God wanted. But here's, here's the thing. You go to that place. Now you're by the Mediterranean Sea, but it's a, it's a salt sea. So you have to be dependent upon the rivers, streams that come from, of course, the early and the latter rains. <coughs> so here's the fact. The fact is that Jerusalem is the only ancient city. Think about this. The only ancient city that wasn't built near a great river. Wasn't built near a great river. Rome was built by the Tiber. Nineveh was built near the Tigris River. Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. And of course the great cities of Egypt were all built near the Nile. All of them. But in the millennium, Jerusalem will have a river that proceeds from the temple of God. Now there is the Jordan, the Jordan River that begins actually in Caesarea Philippi up north that is just south of, of Mount, um, <laughs> uh, where Jesus uh, had the Mount of Transfiguration. It'll come to me. Anyway, that's, that's a, a senior moment right there. But it'll come. <laughs> anyway, the Jordan is sourced from that, that particular mount. Uh, anyway, it comes through the ground in Caesarea and then begins its, its journey south down toward the Dead Sea. Uh, it was a much bigger river, of course, in, in Jesus' time and before. Uh, nowadays, it's, um, it's, you know, the source being, of course, the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee that goes south from, south from there. Uh, not a lot of water right now. As a matter of fact, most lakes have all, you know, lost about 20, 30 feet of water. And uh, there's no uh, exception for, uh, for the Jordan. So, you know, the people need the water. They still are trusting in the early and the latter rains in, in Israel. They still need the early and the latter rains. And I tell you what, we've been there when, when it has snowed. We've been there when it rains. And I mean, the people are just going out and thanking God for, for it. They stand out there just thanking God for the rain. You know, we, we get out there and we see our car that we just washed yesterday, you know, waxed and washed and everything. We go, oh man, it's raining on my car. Look at all that. And here in El Paso, right? It's not only just rain, it's rain and dust. Yeah, so it's really pretty when you get finished. Those people don't care, man. They want the rain. That's the way it is, because that's their water. 
and they need it. So in the millennium, Jerusalem will have a river that just comes really from the temple of God. Zechariah 14 verse 8 says, It shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the former sea, which is the Dead Sea, by the way, and half of them toward the Hinder Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, and in summer and winter shall it be. So it's, you know, the early and the latter rain. It's quite a significant thing that in contrast to what we've just described in the land of Israel, the lands of the enemies that are mentioned here, Egypt and Edom, they're in verse uh, 19. They're going to be desolate as a judgment and punishment for the way that that they treated the the Jewish people. This pretty well means that, that these two nations will have to depend upon Israel. For just the basic essentials of life, such as food and water. They will depend upon Israel. They will come to Israel for those things. It's always very hard to say at the risk of being judgmental. It's always very hard to say that in the day of the Lord, the enemies of Israel will reap what they have sown. But again, that brings us back to the principle that we find in Scripture. If we go out to to dig a hole to bury someone, eventually God is going to dig a hole to bury us if we are unrepentant of whatever sin that, we, that we're causing. The Lord will execute perfect justice and repay them exactly what they're due. No more, no less. Psalm 125 verse 2 says, As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. These are always the promises, always have been the promises that God has given to his people Israel. Yet they forsook those promises. And they've paid for those promises. Or they've paid for their attitudes toward the promises. They've been in captivity. They've been scattered. They've been sold as slaves. They've suffered immensely. God has taken note of that. God doesn't have a weird smile like, uh, you deserve it, you know. And it's the same way with everybody else too. But God is a holy God. And he's a just God. That is why we as believers in Jesus Christ need to realize how precious the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is for us. How precious it is. It's not to be taken lightly in anything we say or do. How we're to live our lives has to reflect the strength and the power of what Christ did on our behalf. And when we live our lives in contradiction to that, What is God's answer going to be to you, to me? 
So in contrast to Egypt and Edom that are mentioned in verse 19, this is what we're told in verse 20 and 21. But Judah shall dwell forever. The one nation that has been so mistreated and Jerusalem from generation to generation shall dwell forever with Christ, with Messiah, who sits on the throne in Jerusalem. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. During the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jerusalem will be the capital of the Messiah's world empire. I have a lot of people over the, you know, the centuries that have wanted to rule the world. They wanted to have their own empire be in control of all of the known world. Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, names just, you know, all throughout history can just pop up. Even in more modern times, Adolf Hitler. Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, all wanting world, world control, control of the world. But this will be truly the time that God will bring eternal life to this earth, with Jerusalem and Judah being the seed of the Lord's government. There can be no other. Because I can assure you that each one of those guys that I mentioned and, and many, many more, they're all still wherever they are, in their graves or wherever their bones may be. That's where they are until the judgment day, until the day of resurrection. Some resurrection to life, others resurrection to darkness and judgment. And God's people will be given eternal security. You know, there's always those arguments about what is eternal security in Scripture. Folks, God's people will be given eternal security because of the Lord's presence. Because of the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem forever. In other words, we are secure. And we can look at ourselves in, the, in this whole scenario too. Because in, we are secure because the Lord loves us with an everlasting love. And because he's redeemed us by his shed blood on the cross. That's what secures us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not the things that we do, you know, to say, well, I'm, I'm trying to stay good. I think I'm saved. A believer knows he's saved, but a believer also knows that he is not the one that saves himself. I want you to consider these wonderful promises that we find in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, that Paul himself sp speaks about. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Is there anyone that can do that? Not really. Why? Because it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? There are a lot of people condemning today. Unfortunately, there are some Christians that are condemning other, other people today, which is something that we're called not to do. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of, the God, uh, right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You know, people may be judging us, people may be condemning us, bringing charges against us, but Christ died. And we've accepted that truth. And we believe that truth. And no matter what the world says, Jesus is interceding for us right now at the very right hand of his Father. And then Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Get this picture here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? What do you think the answer is? This is a rhetorical question. What is the answer? No, none of these things. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're not conquerors unknown of ourselves. We are conquerors through him, through Jesus Christ. who loved us and gave himself for us. And then Paul says this, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Now, if we stop there, that would cover a lot, right? Because as I look around, we're all alive, I think. We're all alive. You know, we're either dead or alive. You know, that's... You know, even if you're kind of alive, you're still alive. If you're almost dead, you're still alive. You know what I'm getting at here? So neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. <clears throat> There's the, the unseen things, the things that we can't see. They can't separate us from the love of Christ. Nor things present, nor things to come. Past is already past. Whatever's present can't separate us from the love of Christ. Whatever may come tomorrow can't separate us from the love of Christ nor height, nor depth, nor, nor any other creature. By the way, we're creatures. Even we can't separate ourselves from the love of Christ. Some people say they walk away. Maybe they were never there to begin with. Maybe it's all just playing around with the, you know, the, with the facts, as it were. No, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. 
And these things pertain to you. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now the last verse of our text in Joel, it rings a, a little bit puzzling to me. It says, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. That first part is, wow, I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. <clears throat> now, the word translated cleanse here is the word naka in, in the Hebrew, naka. And it, it's not the, the, the word for natural cleansing, like cleansing with water or, or, or soap or whatever. You know, it's not like a regular natural cleansing. Naka literally means to pronounce innocent. It means to pronounce guiltless or acquitted. During the terrible times that we call the day of the Lord, preceding the millennium, the Antichrist and his minions, I'm not talking about the guys with the one eye and the little yellow thing, you know. Okay. Just, just. I'd be real surprised, you know, if, if we get a picture of, you know, the, you know, the day of the Lord and there's these little guys with it. Okay. But the Antichrist and his minions will shed the blood of many believing Jews after accusing them of heinous crimes. This is something that we actually see in, uh, in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel also. But it's very much like what Hitler did in Nazi Germany against the Jews. In the early 30s, especially in the middle, mid to late 30s, is when all of a sudden things began to get completely uh, out of hand when it came to the treatment of the Jewish people in Germany in, uh, in the time of, of Hitler. Hitler always is a forerunner to the Antichrist. If you look at the life of Hitler and the things that he did as the chancellor of Germany, then of course becoming the Fuhrer of Germany, the leader, the, the, the supreme leader of, of, Germany, of Nazi Germany, uh, you realize that a lot of things that he did actually are, are just things that Antichrist himself will do. And once again, you have to look at things like uh, certain passages in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation as well. Not only to mention 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But what we find here in this text, I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. I will exonerate. That's, that's a, a word that's kind of popular today in the political arena, exonerate, you know, exoneration. This is an exoneration. And this exoneration may possibly include all of God's people who have been falsely accused and maligned and killed down through the ages. But it could also apply to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. 
And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The fact of the matter is what this is really saying is that they will see the Messiah when he comes and they realize that their Messiah is Yeshua, Jesus. They will see the scars. They will see the nail prints. They shall look upon him when they pierced. What can they say at that very moment? But they mourn in repentance. They mourn in, 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 in realizing that they almost missed their salvation. And the Lord cleanses their blood that they had not cleansed. They had been guilty. But now he says, you're guiltless. What does that remind you of? The very same thing that happened when we came to the Lord Jesus Christ and we confessed our sins to the Lord. And we said, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve any good thing. Timing is everything here with our sound effects. I don't deserve one good thing. But I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus shed his blood. I believe that he rose again. And he pronounces us guiltless. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. This is Titus. Paul to Titus says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. He has saved us by the washing of regeneration, the washing of the word of God. And what a beautiful way to end a prophecy. Verse 21. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. In our study of the prophecy of Ezekiel, we learned of the prophet watching as the glory of God departed from the temple that was about to be destroyed. That was early on in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, where eventually he would see the glory of the Lord depart the temple in Jerusalem. But then he saw that glory return to the new temple. In the newly restored temple in Ezekiel 43. I want you to listen to, the, listen to the words of the last verse of Ezekiel. It was round about 18,000 measures. You know, there was the measurement of the temple. But then notice this. And the name of the city from that day shall be. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah, or Yahweh Shammah, or Hashem Shammah. But God's holy name is there. And that's the name of the city. God is there. And who is there but Jesus Christ?
sitting on the throne. So a prophecy that began with tragedy, the locust invasion, closes in triumph. The Lord is there. And I close with Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen? That's our amen on the book of Joel. Next time we'll be in the book of Amos. We're just going to go on through. There's a lot more to learn as we continue with the minor prophets. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for giving us this privilege, this wonderful opportunity, Lord, to study your word, to continue to see that the things that are happening in this world are happening in a, in a great and mighty way, uh, being fulfilled, scripture being fulfilled today. And, and Lord, we, we just, it, it just stirs our hearts to keep looking and keep living and keep doing what needs to be done so that Christ will be honored and Christ will be glorified. And when he comes, that we won't be caught up unawares or off guard. I just ask, Father God, that you would truly speak to our hearts tonight and help us to understand, Lord, that uh, all of this matters when it comes to what we'll do tonight and tomorrow if the Lord tarries what we will do with the rest of our lives until Christ comes. Lord, help us to understand that. We can't run from it because we can't run from you. We can't hide from it because there's nothing that we can do to hide. There's nowhere we can go. Your scripture makes that clear. Were we to go to the highest heavens, you'll be there. If we go to the lowest parts of hell, you'll be there. There's, not, there's no place that you cannot be because you are an awesome God. So help us to understand this and surrender ourselves to you each and every day so that Christ becomes our strength and our joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand. I want to get you out of this uh, windy weather here as quickly as we can. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, give you shalom, wholeness and completeness. As you go day by day in this life and in this world, put your trust in the one who knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning the one who has seen the whole picture and desires that we will be in eternity with him. And therefore, I pray that your life will reflect the life of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ, the mercies of Christ. This is what continues on until Christ comes for his church. This is what continues on. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That was his first coming. What we read about tonight is the second. The second coming. So we have to make those clear distinctions. But praise the Lord. I say we have time but the Lord can come while we're going out the door and we won't have to mess with the wind anymore. (laughs) That would be good too.